Hi, I'm Sophia Perez and this is Around the Islands. Uh, today we're going to talk about CW regulations. So let's begin with some introductions to our local lawyers. Okay. I'm Bruce Mailman. I am an immigration attorney. The law firm is Mailman and Cara. Ms. Cara is sitting next to me. She'll introduce herself. Uh, we are members of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Uh, I've been in private practice here for 30 years this month and uh, I've done immigration all that time and we uh, here today to talk I understand about CWs and we do a lot of that. Awesome. Yeah. My name is Maya Cara. I'm part of the law firm of Mailman and Cara. Bruce is my partner and my husband. Um, like him I've been in, uh, on Saipan for 30 years not in private practice however I was uh, worked for the local, local government uh, for 17 years. Uh, first 10 years were spent in the uh, House of Representatives and the next um, six years were spent uh, the AG's office, the governor's office, and the lieutenant governor's office. Uh, Bruce and I established our firm in 2005. I, well, I didn't, I didn't retire until 2006. December 2005. <laughs> so anyway, and since then, um, I've, I, for one, have mostly done immigration work. Great. Thank you. George? Hi, my name is George Hasselback. I am the sole member of Hasselback Law Office, LLC. I have been in private practice now for about five years here in the CNMI. Prior to that, I worked for various governmental organizations, and I was in private practice when I first arrived in 2005. Uh, for the past several years I've been focusing my practice on foreign labor related immigration matters. Um, I also do some general litigation work and some other things and um, that's about it. Thank you all so much for being on the show. The whole island has been waiting for these regulations to come out, right? Now they're finally out and I'm just really curious to hear what employers and employees should be waiting for. So if you guys could maybe shed some light on what's about to change. May I start? Please do. Okay. Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that the structure of CW that you're familiar with is mostly still there with changes that were put into place last July. But the application process, once you get to that, to USCIS applications, is going to be very familiar. What is new is the temporary labor certification process which is not handled by USCIS, but U.S. Labor through uh, an office called the Office of Foreign Labor Certification, which also handles H-2s and the process we now have to go through before we can file anything with USCIS is very like an H-2 process. Uh, first, we have to get a prevailing wage determination from labor. Once the determination is made, you have to go through an advertising process and then you have to submit a report on the advertising process for U.S. labor to certify it as approved. Then you can file. And I think that's the place where people are going to find themselves a little like Alice in Wonderland. They've gone down the rabbit hole and nothing is the same shape and size. It just looks kind of familiar. I, I agree with, with Bruce entirely. The system that you're used to has simply had several, had two major steps 
put onto the front end of it. A good way to think of this is if you as an employer have any experience with H2B workers, which here in the CNMI there are not too many employers that have experience with H2B visas, but if you do have experience with H2B visas, a good way to think of this is as an H2B light process. Uh, some of the questions asked during the various steps are going to be different, but the steps themselves for a CW visa are going to be identical to the steps taken to get an H2B. And you may not be used to dealing with uh, the U.S. Department of Labor as an employer. You may not be used to dealing with some of the, some of the items you have to gather, some of the things you have to do. Um, one other important thing to remember about this process now is the process of recruitment all has to take place after you get that temporary labor certification. So you have to go through steps one and step two before you can even begin to do your local advertisement, a process that we are used to doing, but under this system will be much more specific. You will receive a list of things to do from the United States Department of Labor. You have 21 days to do those things. And all that is a prerequisite. It's a gatekeeping function before you even get to applying for the visa with USCIS. I would like to add that we're fortunate in that it's the OFLC we're dealing with. Uh, when the transition to U.S. immigration law occurred 10 years ago, there were a number of government line agencies involved. Uh, DHS, of course, USCIS, CBP, ICE, but also Interior and Health and Human Services, and labor, and there are a couple other agencies, but those were the main ones, and labor is the only one that remained completely uninvolved. Until now. Until now. So this is, this is a different part of labor entirely. This is the part that deals with telling you if you're qualified to have someone work for you, and if that person is, what you've done is enough to be allowed to have someone work for you, a foreign worker, and if the person you've decided to hire is acceptable. And that's a lot different from the wage and hour people, from the labor litigation people. This is, this is an agent, part of the agency that does nothing else. And we've been dealing with them a lot, not just with H-2s, but with uh, some of the employment-based green cards that require going through them. And it's been, I've got to say, a pleasant surprise. It was a lot less difficult than we anticipated. But it is all online, so people who do not have a computer or are not particularly computer literate are going to have a very difficult time complying with the, uh, for the various requirements. That seems like kind of an oversight. It's often, you know, island communities that are hiring these CW workers, no? Yeah. We're not in Washington, D.C., are we? <laughs> yeah. I have one more question about the, uh, the employer regulations. I saw that employers have to look at the employees that they've laid off in the past, like local ones, before they can that find That was really odd, yeah. One of, that is, that strange? That's yeah. something that is lifted almost directly from the H-2B process. Really? Okay. Yes. Um, the whole theory behind this is, behind the H-2B process and now behind the CW process because of the recently passed statute, is that we have to make sure, we collectively, employers, attorneys, everyone involved, has to make sure that the hiring and employment of 
foreign labor does not disrupt the hiring and employment of U.S. labor. U.S. citizens, green card holders, other people that are permitted to work in the United States generally. And that period by which you have to look back and contact, not just, not just look at your employees you that you, you have to reach out to them. Uh, employees that you've had within a certain period of time mm -hmm. that have been laid off, have quit, have just disappeared, employers will be under an obligation to make reasonable, take reasonable steps to contact those people. And if they're interested in working at the job again, mm -hmm. they'll get priority in this process over the CW. Now, the temporary labor certification part um, when you're applying for this labor certification, you get past the prevailing wage step. You're told how much you have to pay people. You begin your advertising process. You start looking for uh, your other employees that may have left in that position. Mm -hmm. You start advertising in the community with the CNMI Department of Labor, with the other things you're supposed to do. If you're contacted by these folks uh, and they're otherwise qualified and there's no good reason not to hire them, and there's reasons out there, you have to hire them first. Mm -hmm. So if you start the process off saying, I need, I don't know, 10 waiters for my restaurant. I'm just picking out of the blue here. If you say, I need 10 waiters for my restaurant, you get the prevailing wage determination for the waiters. You start the temporary labor certification process. You say, I need 10 waiters for my restaurant. And you contact a former employee that left for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And that person says, yeah, I, I want to I wanna come back and work for you again. And they meet the minimum qualifications and they're otherwise employable you may only get labor certification for nine positions because the United States Department of Labor in assessing your recruitment report, which you have to give them at the end of the labor certification process, they will look at this and say, well, you wanted 10, there's one available, we're certifying you for nine. So there's, there's a much more involvement by the government in picking who you have to hire. I mean, it's, they're, they're, their fingers in the pie at this point in time. You know, what, what you said just reminded me of one very large difference from CW recruitment as we know it. Until now, all the recruitment has been done with the aim of filing a petition that identifies the particular worker. Now, you're still going to have to do this, but when you get the TLC, you're going to say, I need one, two, three, many people in this category with this what's called an SOC number, Standard Occupational Code. Just about every job has one. Mm -hmm. So you put down that number and you'll say, I need 10 number 37 dash blah, 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 blah. When you file your CW uh, petition, you're still going to have to identify everybody. Okay. So people aren't going to be used to that, first anonymous and then named. Everybody's used to being named pretty early in. The other thing is, you're not obligated to hire anyone that you laid off or fired for cause. Okay, that's what I was going to question. So if you caught Jeremy X with his hand in the till, mm -hmm. whether you turn him over to the cops or not, you've got a reason not to rehire. You have to bring him back. Okay. But if the guy simply said, you know, I don't feel like working right now, I'm going to leave, you've got to talk to him. Another complication is that while previously with CWs, you did have to tell USCIS what the job category was and give them a general description of what the person would be doing. Now you've got another federal agency that you have to tell that to. So this, the identification of the individual position with a high degree of specificity and providing a, 
a detailed uh, list of job duties, that occurs at the prevailing wage determination stage. Mm -hmm. This isn't something you can wait on doing. You can't just say, well, we've got 10 CWs in our company, we're going to start the process and we'll figure out what jobs you're going to do later. You have to tell the U.S. Department of Labor in the very beginning when you apply for the prevailing wage determination, I need job X. Job X duties are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Mm -hmm. And that has to stay the same throughout the whole process from the prevailing wage determination to the temporary labor certification through to the visa application. You have to have the same position, the same job description, etc. And I think a lot of us have gotten the feeling that this hundred and some page document that came out describing all of these regulations indicates a potential ratcheting up of some of the enforcement mechanisms. So a a vague description of what somebody is doing. Unless you have a very good description of what that person is doing for a job, you're not going to get past the prevailing wage determination stage. Mm -hmm. if, you, if your description is too vague or too varied, I want somebody to do work. The job description is, they do work for me. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get a prevailing wage determination. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a silly example, but I just say that to warn employers that they have to be very specific about what these folks are going to be doing. And you can't pile everything into one job description. And you can't design the job for the person you want to hire. There you go. Mm. You can't say, well, uh, I only want to hire someone that speaks Urdu and came from this particular city. I mean, that's a ridiculous example. Mm -hmm. But I've seen things almost that closely designed. You can still have specific things like language requirements that you have to be able to justify them. I operate a tour business. Most of my clients are Cantonese speakers. I need someone who can speak to them in a language they understand. Right. And but, even, even in situations like that, it is the language requirement always comes up. Yeah. Uh, people always say, can I, can I put a language requirement in this job position? And generally speaking, if you lay all of the job positions out there in the world and said, on average, can I put a language requirement in them? The majority of them, mm -hmm. the answer would be no. Yeah. It, is, it is the unusual situation that you can put a language requirement in. And employers need to be very careful of all of this stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that was emphasized, not only in the statute that was passed, not only in the regulations that have been proffered, and not only in the comment to the regulations that have been proffered, is the idea that if an employer violates the law with regard to these types of visas, they can be put on, for lack of a better term, a blacklist and prevented from having CW workers in the future. Up to five years. And they're using the word debarred. Debarred, yes. Debarred. And I think that is, I don't think that, I mean, no one can predict the future with perfect accuracy, but I don't see that as an idle threat. I think that there's a lot of focus on the CNMI, and there's a lot of focus on the CNMI for the purposes of foreign labor, and there's a lot of focus on the CNMI because of the CW program. I, yes, we were given a reprieve, another 10 years of CWs, but I don't think that, I don't think it'd be surprising to see an uptick in enforcement. So, um, you know, Maya and I spent a high proportion of our time when people come to us trying to 
cure the damage done by people we call fixers, document handlers, mm. people who are not attorneys and not trained HR, who usually for a fee, sometimes out of helpfulness, provide immigration services. And they actually may know how to do very simple things, but they don't know how to do it right. Mm. And I've had people that have suffered very severe consequences, uh, including being deceived into overstaying for more than a year, which means when they leave the U.S., they're not coming back for back. 10 years. Right. More than six months in leave, but you're not coming back for three years. And they've been okie-dokied along by the document handler. Oh, everything's okay, everything's okay. Mm -hmm. And up until this point, that has been the consequences of rolling the dice with some of these folks and losing has primarily been borne by the workers that may have overstayed and may not be allowed to come back. But it's starting to look like some of that responsibility and some of that consequence of those bad rolls of the dice with the document handlers will start to be borne by the employers as well. So uh, Bruce was talking about the effects in the, the effects that have manifested in the past um, regarding these, these poorly executed applications for CW visas. And previously, the weight of denials or the weight of misinformation has been primarily borne by the workers who may have overstayed, who may be barred from further entry into the United States because of bad information or outright lies from some of the people that are processing there. Like they accidentally were in violation of the law. Right. So what this seems to be creating is a system where there is a, there's not only a, uh, a consequence borne by the workers, but you know, the employers have to worry about this now as, as well. You know, if they, if they get tied up with some misrepresentation that they may or may not have intended to make because the person that is applying for these things may or may not understand the process, if they get tied up with something like that, they may be debarred from, from further participation in the CW program. And there are a couple of spots in this process where you have to sign an attestation under penalty of perjury. And personally speaking, if I were signing something under the penalty of perjury that was being prepared by somebody else for me, I would want to make sure that the person preparing it for me knew what the heck they were doing. So this implicates a lot of these individuals and businesses who purport to be, you know, the term fixer was used, document handlers are used. These are not legal professionals. They don't, they don't have the training and experience that legal professionals have. I'm wondering, oh, go ahead. I just, I wanted to say something about the, what I see, foresee as the general effect on the economy because a very large percentage, I don't have the numbers, of business in the CNMI is conducted by small businesses. And I think the large employers will be fine. You know, they either have competent HRs or they know how to hire, they know how, when to hire lawyers, most of them, to help them out. So I'm not really concerned about the big guys, but so much of our economy is based on the mom and pops and the small businesses and people who employ less than 10 people, okay? And those people really don't have the capital. They really don't have the money to 
hire attorneys to do this now much more complicated application process, which is going to cost more. We have to charge more because we have to do more, mm -hmm. okay? And so I'm not sure what's going to happen to a lot of these moms and pops. And a lot of them will just pack up and leave because it's just, with this new change, I think there'll be a perception that it's just too complicated and too expensive, you know. So I, I kind of uh, foresee an exodus of small businesses because I just don't see how they're going to comply. Another roadblock I was wondering about, because they're going to have to use the prevailing wage for Guam, right? Because the CNMI doesn't have one right well, now. Well, it should have for... one soon. And well. there's been some, uh, some pressure from the government to not file petitions for CW until our prevailing wage is out. Mm -hmm. But timing is very sensitive and employers really want to get there as soon as they can because there is still a limited number of spots. Mm -hmm. So there's this um, tension between what the government, the local government would like us to do, which is to wait for the CNMI wage study. And just filing. Mm -hmm. So there's some employers that pay mainland wages. They're not going to worry about the, um, you know, the prevailing wage right. study. Mm -hmm. But the government right now is telling them, oh, don't hold off on filing. Mm -hmm. So we think that's not good advice. Okay. The employers should be able to make an intelligent choice. Of which way they want I think to of it as CW roulette. <laughs> roulette? Yeah, like Russian roulette. Mm -hmm. Currently, if one tour were to apply today online for prevailing wage determination, there is no prevailing wage survey right. in the CNMI. The statute says the next thing we go to is the prevailing wage in Guam, right. which is, my understanding is, is not identical to that in the CNMI, but it's certainly closer to the CNMI wages that we're used to than the U.S. mainland wages would be. If you have a job category that is not surveyed in Guam, uh, there is going to be some computation made by the U.S. Department of Labor. And I'm not a math guy, but there's a computation made by the U.S. Department of Labor where they calculate the difference on average between mainland wages and Guam wages, and they apply that difference to the wage in the mainland of whatever position you're seeking and come up with an estimate of what a Guam wage would be had they surveyed for it. Interesting. Interesting is a very interesting <laughs> word. Um, so I've heard people tell me, well, if we apply today, we'll get U.S. mainland wages. That's, that's not accurate. Mm. If you get a prevailing wage, if you get a prevailing wage, if you apply today and you get a prevailing wage, yes, you will not get something from a CNMI prevailing wage survey. But there is a process in place to use either Guam or a you should call it a simulated Guam prevailing wage for those odd positions that did survey for Guam. I think another thing people have to calculate, as Maya mentioned, we do have clients who already pay mainland wages. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they have highly skilled people doing jobs that it's very hard to attract employees, even the mainland, and they've got them, they have to pay them what they would get to keep them here. There's also a number of people, uh, there's a gotcha in here, 
for a survey to be acceptable for any job category, you got to have at least 30 employees and at least three different employers total. Okay. So there's some job categories. Uh, I think accountants are overrepresented. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, most of the people that work in hotels or that do commercial cleaning or maintenance, they'll be well represented. But there's a number of categories that don't qualify for H-1B or as you know, a specialty occupation. They're not special need uh, that qualify for H-2, but there's not a lot of them. Um, neonatal nurses, for example. What, what would it be? Like neonatal nurses. Okay. I was thinking of like a veterinarian. That's I what I was thinking. Yeah. A veterinarian yeah. assistant. Yeah. Okay? There's not going to be 30 on exactly. the island. Yeah. No way. I know because we've been trying to get my dog in for like a month. So they, they won't be, as Bruce said, they're, they're, they're not going to be enough people here to come up with a statistically significant sample, is mm -hmm. what they, they call it. And therefore, they're going to have to default to the plan B. They being the Department of Labor is going to default to the plan B, which is using a wage from somewhere else. Either Guam, if they're, even if they're surveyed there, I don't know if there'd be enough there, so they're going to have to use that calculation in order to come up. I don't think there's 30 dental. I, I doubt it. Yes, yeah, I, I doubt it. Well, there's a lot more. I mean, there's at least three or four instead of like one mm -hmm. uh, employers. So, so I just think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the CW employees, the workers themselves, what they can expect after these regulations. Well, they can expect if, they're, if their employers follow the law that they're not going to be paying for their own petitions anymore. Okay. That's, that's been specifically forbidden. And in fact, when people have been brought forbidden. in... Not new. Well, you know, there was some loosey-goosey. If you've got someone going through consular processing, could you ask them to pay the uh, consular appointment fee, the DS-160? Right. Uh, the so form you have to file with state to go to. Too, right? There's more That's clear right. what will happen to the employer. Yeah. If they are but it's very clear now you have to pay the airfare, mm -hmm. and you have to pay uh, the airfare back if they fulfilled a certain proportion of the contract. Mm -hmm. uh, if your business finds itself in trouble, you still have to pay at least three quarters time of what would have been a full contract. So, it's a different world for employers, and that should make it a different world in many ways for employees. To, to, to be completely clear, a CW visa, whether it's prevailing wage determination, the temporary labor certification, the actual visa application, the trip over, any of it, the workers cannot be charged or cannot be asked to reimburse the employer for any costs related to any of them. Hmm. So if you are an employee and you have been charged for something related to your CW, whether it's a filing fee or a document handling fee or whatever your employer calls it, if you have been charged for something or asked to reimburse your employer for something, your employer is breaking the law. On that same note, if you were brought here as a CW worker and then told to go seek your own clients or seek your own work, or go out and find houses to clean, or find somewhere to work, 
and then give a percentage of that money to your employer, your employer is breaking the law. There used to be a contract here that was <laughs> notorious for free-range construction workers. Right. Hmm. And a number of them came to my office one day. It was a group of about six or seven. And they had a problem. I said, well, who's your employer? And they named this company. I said, so you don't really have an employer, do you? And they went, no, not really. Hmm. They knew. See, we have workers come to us for help. And they've been defrauded one way or another by their employers, either by not getting paid or those things that Bruce is talking about, or no job, or whatever. Or being lied to about, well, this, everything's okay, we've appealed, keep working. I really feel bad when those people come, because there's very little we can do to them. Because you always go back to the principle that the petition, it's the employer's petition. It's their responsibility to do everything to employ this worker in the U.S. So it's on them to get the visa. Mm -hmm. And when the employer's employees get screwed, as they so often do, they have very little recourse. You know, like, attorney, attorney, please help me. I've been denied, and it, you know, three months ago, but I just found out, help me. Can't do anything can't do anything. I mean, you ask them questions. You establish whether they're victims of an actual crime. You establish whether or not they were trafficked. You know, if they were brought here under false pretenses, they were lied to once they were here. Uh, if they were, you know, used and abused in those kinds of ways. Then there may be some relief. If the enforcement part of our government is interested in prosecuting, or willing to sign off on a help with the investigation for them, which so they don't they like don't to do. They're, hmm? not, they don't, they're not interested in cooperating in that. They don't like you, to. you mean the enforcement agencies? Yeah. Well, just I, I can't speak for the enforcement agencies because I'm not part of them, but understand that everything that we've discussed here did not suddenly become illegal when this new statute passed. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. This has always, it has always been the mm -hmm. deal that CW workers should not be paying a penny for their CW visas, period. I mean, yeah, okay. it's been laid out and very clear. Okay. But yet there are still companies who employ people and make them pay all of the fees and document processing fees and make, pay their own plane ticket or force them to reimburse all that money. And once, they're, and once they're here, tell them, go out and find your own clients. So or recruiters or in recruiters. the country of origin. Yes. Well, and all these so-called um, employment agencies. I mean, I'm sure there are some good ones, but most of them are really marginal. They're really small. They were, they used, many of them are owned by former contract workers who, you know, service their own community, whether, you know, Chinese or Filipino. And it's all kind of like, yeah, we know this is against the law, but you still got to pay us. You know, it's just, it's the only way that you're going to get the job. So pay us, and people do. Are these new regulations going to make a difference, do you think, in those violations? I think a lot of these small employment agencies are going to go out of business. Because they're not going to be able to manpower. So there's not going to be any more protections, but a lot of businesses are going to go under. I just think it's going to be too expensive and too complicated. The people who own these employment agencies that I've dealt with 
are extremely unsophisticated. Okay. okay. And I don't see them being able to successfully pass these new hurdles. Gotcha. You know. So they're just gonna I think a lot of them are just going to say, oh, never mind. And I'm done. The degree to which these new, which really aren't new, but the degree to which the new regulations that say what the old regulations said in large part, as far as these particular subjects, how well, how much of a difference they're going to make from an enforcement perspective is entirely up to the agencies that are charged with enforcing. And the, the other thing, just as a side note to this, both with people that have been victim of document handlers or fixers and people that have been cheated by employers or by recruiters, they're always really reluctant to identify the perpetrators. That's right. It may be because of fear of getting in trouble with the authorities. It may be because of fear of getting in trouble with the recruiters or the employers. Well, because it's always collusive. It may be the community will shut them down. Right. Whatever it is, uh, I come across this really, literally, several times a week. And people just don't want to seek the remedies that are out there. If you could offer one piece of advice for a CW worker right now, what would it be, given these new regulations? Uh, I'm not sure there's one single piece of advice that could be enough, but I, if there were just one piece of advice, mm -hmm. ask your employer to make sure they get it right. <laughs> <laughs> the game has changed, and whether or not I'm speaking to the employee, the employer, whomever. This is not, this is not your mom and dad's CW. Okay. <laughs> it, it's, it's not, it's not what we're used to. We, the community, the legal community, the business community, it's not what we're used to. We have a very comprehensive comment document in excess of a hundred pages. Mm. That's a lot of stuff in there, but it doesn't explain how everything's going to work. We are only going to know how all this shakes out after it starts shaking out. And that means after people start getting denied. And once we start realizing why they're being denied, how they're being denied, we just won't know until some denials start rolling back. So give yourself the best chance of success on these and make sure that you understand the process and speak to people that do understand the process. The other thing I'd like to point out is first of all the new regs that's an interim final rule it's still open for comment it may change where's that <laughs> second second the law that passed last july mm -hmm. requires two sets of regulations one from labor now we have that and one from uscis which we do not have and they have to get those out maybe they'll accept petitions on the sort of uh, the way the way government budgets are done on continuing resolution. I don't know, but their regs are not out yet. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. Um, hopefully we can have a follow-up sometime later, maybe once the USCIS uh, regulations come out. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, and uh, I guess until then we'll just see how everything plays out, right? Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you.